We will be reading verses 8 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. And therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying and the angel of God called to Abraham to Hagar, sorry, from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took for him, took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you in the name of your son and the strength and power of your spirit. And we ask that you would give strength and aid to our ears, hearts and minds this morning as we consider these passages in your word. Help us not only see the rich historical reality here. But help us also to see the rich theological truth that is being made in these verses and that will be later clarified for us in your sacred revelation. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us now in Christ's name we pray. And Lord, I ask that you help me to decrease, that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Once again, I uh, greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I greet you with a... Good morning and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue uh, our study through the book of Genesis and also want to praise God that he has given us the strength to arise this morning. My wife and I were up late last night uh, talking and uh, just fellowshipping with one another and I realized that it was two o'clock in the morning and realized just today that it was actually three o'clock in the morning. So to God be the glory that we are here and in hopefully uh, in energetic moods to hear God's word. We return now again to the 21st chapter of the book of Genesis. The Lord has done for Abraham and Sarah exactly what he has said he would do. After 25 years of waiting upon the promise of God, after 25 years of wrestling with their faith, and after 25 years of sorrow, the elderly couple's sorrow has been turned to joy. They have received the promised child that their hearts have so desperately longed for. And how? How? Because God keeps his promise. Because the Lord God watches over his word to see that it is fulfilled. The Lord God sends forth his word and that he has promised that the word that he sends forth will not return to him without accomplishing the purpose for which he has sent it out. Brothers and sisters, we do not worship a God who is unreliable. 
We do not worship a God who is untrustworthy. Amen. We do not worship a God who says, but not do. God is not like us. Everything that he says can be relied upon, can be depended upon, can be taken to the bank, if you will. And we would do well to settle in our hearts this eternal truth. That our God is faithful. That our God is faithful when we are faithless, just like Abraham was on many occasions faithless. God was, God is, and God always will be faithful. This is a comforting truth, especially in times when God's promises are not fulfilled according to our schedules or in the timely manner that we would like them according to our timetables. Because God does not work on our timetables. God does not work according to our schedules. For Abraham and Sarah, though it may have seemed like the promise of God was delayed, it was in the wisdom of God. It was in the eternal will of God. And it was fulfilled at the exact time, appointed time, that God had determined it. And think about the time. That the Lord God, in his wisdom, determined to fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah. The promise of God would come to pass when the body of Abraham and the womb of Sarah were considered to be as good as dead. Think about this. The Lord, in his wisdom, determined that the time when the promise would come to pass would, it would, that would be when Abraham's body was as good as dead, 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was also as good as dead, the age of 90. And why? It was so that Abraham could sing as we have just sung, so that every single one of his schemes could be crushed, so that every single uh, uh, avenue that he saw as a potential to maybe accomplish God's purposes in his own flesh could be absolutely obliterated. Why would the Lord in his wisdom so determine that this would be the appointed time? It was, brothers and sisters, so that there would be no boasting in the flesh. It was so that Abraham and Sarah could only laugh in absolute wonder and amazement at the omnipotence of God who brings dead things to life. This was God's work. This could only be the power of God. For from this miracle of miracles, the Lord God causes this elderly couple to laugh. And they name their son, Isaac, Isaac. He laughs. So that they and that he actually might be a living witness to all who see him, to all who encounter him, that he might be a living witness to the omnipotent power of God, even against all reason of men. One who was 100 and one who was 90 conceiving a child that is preposterous, that he might be a witness even against the forces of nature. Not only is it preposterous, it is impossible. And Isaac, he laughs, would be an eternal or at least a, an earthly example of the power of God. And now today, with God's help, we shall consider these uh, verses up to verse 21 in two points. And this morning we will be considering the conflict within the house of Abraham. Conflict within the house of Abraham. Uh, number one is our first point. Conflict in the house of Abraham. Verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. The scriptures... <clears throat> move very quickly from the birth of Isaac to the weaning of Isaac. Weaning, that is the, the time that the child grows from nursing to eating solid food. It is called weaning. The child has been weaned off of his mother and is now 
eating solid food. This usually took about two or three years for this process. In that culture, the weaning process was cause for great celebration. It was a milestone, a milestone of maturation. The infant has now become a child. Abraham prepared a great feast for the occasion. And we can rightly assume that this was a joyous celebration uh, with food and gifts and possibly music. And while this celebration was taking place, Sarah noticed something that causes the anger of any mother to rise up within her. She noticed that her son, Isaac, the promised child, was being mocked. Look at verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking or laughing. We'll get more into this in a moment. Now, let us remember that this was a joyous event. It was a celebration. Meaning what? Think about that. It's a celebration. Abraham has thrown a great feast. What's the purpose of that? What's the, 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 the reason why we would pause on that point? Because it is quite possible that everyone is laughing. It's quite possible that everyone is enjoying themselves. Sarah has said, everyone who hears what God has done for me, they will laugh with me. But there was something different about the laughter of Ishmael. It was a it was the laughter of a malignant kind, meaning this. It was the type of scorn. By which Ishmael manifested his contempt and hatred. For his infant brother, Isaac. So when we read the passage where Ishmael is laughing, we must not only think that it is just Ishmael uh, in an immature kind of way teasing his little brother. Rather, the scriptures will go on later to say in the book of Galatians that it was a type of persecution that Ishmael was inflicting upon his younger brother, Isaac. Brothers and sisters, Ishmael hated Isaac. And his mocking was a manifestation of his hatred toward his Younger half-brother. Now let me ask you this question. Are we surprised that Ishmael hates Isaac? Are we surprised? For 14 years, Ishmael has been the apple of his father's eye. For 14 years, Ishmael has received all of his father's love. He has received all of his father's attention, and now his father's love is divided. And it may even appear, at least in the eyes of Ishmael, that his father's love was not only divided, but it was now weighing more heavily on Isaac than it was on Ishmael. Almost the love that Ishmael has received from his father pales in comparison to the love that his father is now showing to Isaac. Ishmael has seen the love of his father Toward his little half-brother Isaac and his jealousy is inflamed. His heart is burning with jealousy. Ishmael not only hates the baby, he also hates the promise that is attached to the baby. This is at last the promised child. Now we are not told that there was a weaning celebration for Ishmael. Maybe we could assume that it is cultural to do so. But the Bible goes to at least great lengths to say there was a party for Isaac. You see that? We don't know if there was one for Ishmael, but we do know there was one for Isaac. For 13 years, Ishmael has been taught to believe, listen, that he was the promised child. For 13 years, 14 years, 13 years, he has been taught to believe he was the promised child. When Abraham took Hagar and conceived a child, Abraham in his own mind concluded this, I guess this is the promised child. I guess, Lord, since I have no children and now I've conceived a child, this is the one whom 
you've promised you would give to me. If you recall during that sermon that I preached, I said, I don't believe that Abraham was truly content with his decision to conceive with Hagar, but he would not hear from the Lord for another 13 years. And so after 13 years, he must have concluded, well, I guess this is the son. I guess this is the one that the Lord has promised because I haven't heard from God in 13 years. Until 13 years later, the Lord appears to Abraham again and reveals to Abraham that it would be through Sarah. The one whom you have been trying to conceive with, it will be, it shall be through her that the promised child would come. And what shock and amazement must have come upon Abraham when he realized I was wrong the whole time. The whole time that he's been raising Ishmael to believe that that you are the promised child. Giving Ishmael all of his love, all of his attention, maybe all of his affection. And pointing to Ishmael and saying, you shall receive my inheritance, I'm sure. He loved Ishmael. When the Lord God came to him and said, you shall conceive a child through Sarah. Do you remember what, what the Lord, what Abraham said to the Lord? In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 18, he said, Lord, that, that Ishmael would be the one through whom the promise would come. He, he pleads on behalf of Ishmael that Ishmael would be the promised child. And the Lord God denies that request. Abraham requested that Ishmael would be the promised child. Why? Because up until that time, in Abraham's mind, Ishmael was the promised child. Also, up until that point, in Ishmael's mind, he too believed that he was the promised child. And now, he's being told he's not the promised child. He's not the one that we've been waiting for after all. Kind of a lot for a 13-year-old to take in. If we take all this into account, it would be no wonder why this boy hates his half-brother. He hated the boy. He hated the promise. That used to be his promise. Brothers and sisters, he not only hated the, the, the promised child, he hated the one. He not only hated the promised child, he not only hated the promise, but he hated the one who gave the promise. He hated God. Now, that may sound like a, a long, strong stretch. He hated God. How can we say that he hated God from his laughter, mocking of Isaac? Ishmael's laughter was not only directed toward Isaac, but it was directed toward God. Why? Because of the promise that was connected to Isaac was from God. And he stands in contempt and he reveals through his hatred of his brother that he's also standing against God. Here's the promise that God has given to this child. Ishmael, as we will see later, is persecuting that child and the promise. Therefore, he stands in opposition to God and God's purposes. He is a seed of the serpent. Here again. We had this reoccurring theme of two seeds, two kingdoms, two sons. And they had been opposing each other since the fall in the garden. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and his seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We have seen this seed war waged over and over again. And here now again, in Ishmael, we are seeing that the serpent is revealing himself. In opposing the promise of God through Ishmael's mocking. Again, in Galatians, which we will consider in a moment, the Apostle Paul describes Ishmael's opposition as persecution. And he likens it as the persecution that the world inflicts on the church. And so what we are seeing here in Ishmael's mocking of Isaac is later described As what the world does to the church. Do you see that we have two kingdoms here? Not just an immature boy who's making fun of his little brother. There is a greater theological point that is being made here. And we might even argue he's just a boy. That's what boys do. 
They tease one another. They mock one another. He had no idea what he was doing or the consequences that would come about by his persecution. Though, as we shall see, Ishmael is referred to as a boy. He's at least 16 or 17 years old at this time. If the weaning process takes two or three years, Ishmael was 14 years old when the boy was born. He is now at least 16 or 17 years old. He's not an immature uh, child anymore. Although the Bible refers to him as a boy and as a lad, he is well enough, old enough to know exactly what he's doing and to be aware of his actions. Yes, he was a sinner from his mother's womb. But his persecution of Isaac reveals that he belongs to the kingdom of darkness and not to the kingdom of God. How? Now, how? Ask yourself this. Has Ishmael heard God's promise? Has he heard the promise of a nation? Has he heard the promise of a land? Has he heard the promise of one who would come forth from Abraham that would bless the nations? And has he heard that there will also be one that is from Abraham that will be the establishing of those nations? Yes. He knows all of those things. Ishmael has come to, had to come to grip with the fact that that's not him. That's not him. He was born of the flesh. Through the strength of the flesh. He is not a son of faith. He's a son of the flesh. And now he is witnessing this celebration. The celebration of this child who is growing to an infant of whom all of those promises will be fulfilled through that one. Ishmael. He could have been rejoicing with the rest of the assembly. But rather than rejoicing with the rest of the assembly, and he would have only been able to rejoice with the rest of the assembly if grace was wrought in his heart. But he could have celebrated with the rest of the assembly, rejoicing at the promise of God, rejoicing that the promised one has come. But instead, Ishmael opposes the child and the promise, and therefore Ishmael opposes God. He rejects this one who shall receive the inheritance. Ishmael rejects the nation that would spring forth from Isaac. Ishmael rejects the one who would bless all the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Ishmael is a threat to the promise of God. Ishmael hated his brother in his heart. Our brother Ray said recently, uh, the, the hatred of the heart eventually results in action. And so Sarah is seeing a potential threat and she is being used by the Lord to spot out this potential threat to the promise of God. Brothers and sisters, would Satan love more than anything to once again have a brother strike down his brother? We might say that would not happen. It's happened before. It's happened before. When Cain struck down his brother Abel, it's happened before. We should not look at this passage and think, there's no harm here. Sarah, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is seeing the potential threat to that promise. The Bible says she recognizes the threat in verse 9 and 10. Let's look at that. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. She becomes angry. And in her words, it sounds like she's more concerned with money, right? It sounds like uh, that woman will not have any of this dynasty, that woman will not have any of this inheritance, nor her son. This is all of ours. <laughs> it, it sounds that way. But she wants to. Let, let me say this. In Sarah's response, there is obviously an element of sin. Why? First of all, because she is a sinner. Second of all, because it, it appears as though there is a, an overreaction, if you will. 
to Sarah's response to Hagar and the child. But if we see it from this vantage point of she recognizes the threat, then it makes absolute sense. Send them away. No, she's not overreacting, but she wants them out of their company altogether. Send them out of here. Now, let's also dig into consideration who Sarah is is speaking against. Who is she speaking against? She's speaking against Hagar. And she's speaking against the son of Hagar, Ishmael. Uh, how did Ishmael come to be? Through, a, through Sarah's suggestion, right? Sarah is the one who suggested this promise of God is not happening. Therefore, Abraham, take my maidservant and, and, and let's make it happen. And now Sarah, after Hagar conceived, Hagar began to mistreat Sarah. Hagar began to look down on Sarah as if I've been able to achieve something you've never been able to achieve. And so Sarah began to mistreat Hagar. And you've got this, for lack of a better word, you've got this catty fight going on between these two women who both love Abraham, it seems. And now... It appears as though Sarah has seized the opportunity to take her final vengeance upon Hagar. And she won't even call her by her name, this maidservant. Your Bible may even say, your Bible may even say, uh, cast a slave woman out. And she says it two or three times, cast a slave woman out, cast this maid out. She won't even call her by her name, nor her son. Get her and her son out of here. All of these years, she has suffered with the reality that she has given her husband over to her maidservant to conceive what she could not. And it's eaten away, it seems, at her soul. She's not only angry with the child, she's angry with Abraham, angry with Hagar, and maybe even angry with herself. Uh, This is what happens when we go routes that God has not called us to go. This is uh, the conflict that arises when we try to do things our own way. But it seems now that, that again, she sees the opportunity. And, and Sarah would have known the call to be a submissive, uh, modest wife before God. But she doesn't act very uh, modest here, does she? She acts furious. She acts in anger. And she says to her husband, furiously, drive them out. Get rid of them and uh, get rid of both of them. They will have no part And she says, uh, not your son, my son. She she says, uh, he shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. Uh, Those are dangerous times in our marriages, right? When we begin to call a child that is both of ours, mine, instead of ours. And so she calls Abraham to cast out the slave woman again, the, the maidservant. But in her anger, and again, there is sin in her anger. It seems that she's acting in in vengeance. And even though she seems to be acting in vengeance, her tongue and her mind are being used by the Holy Spirit. And this suggestion or this, this command, this demand, if you will, will later be used to make A powerful theological point. So although she is acting in anger, the Lord God is using her demand for his own purposes. It was God's will that these two be cast out. The inheritance was at the forefront of her mind, but redemption was at the forefront of God's mind. Hagar may have thought that she and Ishmael would be cared for for the rest of their lives, that they would have nothing to worry about. As, after all, Abraham will take care of us. And Sarah was not only calling that they be removed, but Sarah was also calling that they be disinherited. Disinherited. You get nothing. After all of these years of believing that they would receive something, they are now being told you will receive nothing. She was not only angry with her husband, Abraham, which Sarah 
with Ishmael and maybe herself, but she, she usurps the government of her household and calls Abraham to fall in line. She calls Abraham to be obedient to her and not the other way around. And again, though she acted in anger, her suggestion, her demand was being governed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Abraham loved his son. He had genuine affection for his son. As we've stated uh, earlier, for 13 or 14 years, he has been in some measure, he has believed that Ishmael was the promised child. For 13 or 14 years. He could not bear the thought of completely cutting Ishmael off for the purpose of causing the inheritance to remain entirely to one for whom it had been promised. Brothers and sisters, there is much in the mind of Abraham that we cannot and will not ever begin to understand. The tossing and turning that must have taken place at night as he wrestled with this most difficult decision. To send away his only son or to send away a son that he loved. There is much that we will never be able to understand about that. But let me say here is something that we can understand. When we do things our way, there will always be consequences. Abraham would have never believed or thought that this uh, act of, of taking Hagar would lead to this eventually. And it's the same with all of the characters that we have dealt with so far. Lot would have never thought that moving just close to Sodom would have ended up in Sodom absolutely being destroyed and his wife being turned into a pillar of salt. He would have never guessed that this would be the end. But brothers and sisters, this is what happens when we go our own way. Abraham is wrestling with the matter. And so the Lord God is his shield, just as he promised he would be. And he comes to Abraham and gives him great comfort. He says to him in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad. And your maid, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid, I will make a nation also. Why? Because he is your descendant. The Lord God calls Abraham to listen to his wife. To see past the anger. To see past the frustration. And to see that there is a greater theological point, a greater plan and purpose of God that is taking place in this terrible, uh, heartbreaking incident, God is at work. And that's encouraging for us. That at times when we are going through difficult times, it may be that God is crushing us, as our song said. It may be that God is removing from us self that is often in the way. So rather than being distressed and rather than being tossed and turned, that we should trust and rest that God is at work, though it be difficult. The Lord God says, listen to Sarah, not because of Sarah's disposition, but because God was sovereignly at work through Sarah's demand. God was at work. And so. As we will also see in chapter 22, Abraham arose early. There was no delay, but Abraham arose early. And in faith and also in grief, faith is never fun. Uh, faith is not always fun. Say that. We could believe and stand in faith and also have great grief at the same time. We could take one foot after the other, and though we be walking, every step be painful. Abraham is standing in the morning, rising early, preparing supplies. And if you can imagine, we could never imagine, if you can see it in your mind's eye, this man who is crying tears as he is preparing supplies for his son that he may never see again. As he is preparing the water, 
as he is preparing food for a son whom he loves and for one whom he may never see again. He will send him away, his firstborn and the one who has borne him. We are seeing, though, Abraham is he's finally turning a corner, isn't he? If we could speak in such ways, this was a display of Abraham's faith. And one of Abraham's besetting sins, if we could call it so, was that he over and over again fails to completely trust God. That he shortcuts or he does manipulative things. But God calls him to trust him. I, God says, will provide for Ishmael. Trust me. And though it be difficult, Abraham does. Abraham would not take matters into his own hands this time. He would trust that God would do all that God said he would do. And there seems again to be a turn finally because this would be heartbreaking for any parent uh, to even see your own child, whether that be a child who was not born by one whom you particularly loved. It's still your child. And can you imagine even your own child sending them away to college, walking them down an aisle, them growing and no longer being in your house. Abraham would send this child away, this young man away. We do not hear of Ishmael again until the death of Abraham. When he appears once more at the funeral of his father, standing there with Isaac. This will not be, though. The last time that the Lord will tell Abraham to get rid of one of his sons. And it seems like this moment of God telling Abraham to send him away was preparing Abraham for a more difficult send him away. Verse 14 through 21. Uh, I will, for the sake of time, not read the rest of it. But Abraham loaded the supplies onto Hagar's shoulders Loading them onto her shoulders, she is now responsible for Ishmael. And he sends them off. And where do they go? Where is she from? Where is Hagar from? She's from Egypt. What is Egypt uh, repeatedly referred to in the scriptures as? Sin. Where does Hagar go when she is released, sent away by Abraham? She goes back to Egypt. They departed. They began to wander back to Egypt. Soon the supplies have run out and they've completely run out of water. And they began to weep and to wail because they were near death. And the Bible says that God heard the voice of the boy, not the voice of, of Hagar, but the voice of the boy. And why does God hear the voice of the boy? Was Ishmael a believer? Of all that we've seen so far, was Ishmael a believer? Did God save him? Will we see him in glory? Well, he heard Ishmael's cry. But was it the cry of repentance? No, it was not. The Lord heard the boy uh, crying because the boy was near death. And the reason why, primarily, the Lord God heard the voice of the boy is because he promised Abraham that he would take care of his son. He did not promise Abraham that he would save him from his sin. He promised Abraham that Abraham would, that Israel would become a great nation. That kings would come from him, princes would come from him. But not that he would save him from his sin. The Lord inclined to the boy on account of Abraham. And the boy would survive and become a great nation. He would not die of starvation that day. The Lord God also encourages Hagar. That he not only is the God who hears. But he is also the God who sees. He's not only the God who sees. But the God who hears. Ishmael's name means he hears. God restores her vision. Allows her to see a well that she might drink from and be refreshed. She goes, fills the well, gives water to the boy, and they eventually carry on their journey and they make it to at least Paran. 
God was kind to Ishmael. God was kind to Ishmael, allowing him, giving him earthly blessings. But how do we know that Ishmael will still oppose God? Who does he marry? He marries an Egyptian. And this was a prelude to the future dissension and struggle that will, that will come about between the Israelites and the Ishmaelites. There will be one who is uh, stuck in a cave. Placed there by his brothers who are older than him. And who drags him out of that cave to take him to Egypt to be sold there as a slave? Ishmaelites. As they take Joseph out of that pit that his brothers threw him into. This will not be the end of Ishmael and his story. Because of the special relationship that God had with Abraham, he blesses Ishmael. This is not to say again that he is saved, but that he enjoys earthly blessings. Now, very long point. There is conflict there. We must ask at the end of all of this, what does all of this mean? What does all of this have to do with the rest of redemptive history? How does this true historical event fit into the overall narrative of the scriptures and the scriptures message of salvation? Number two. This will be a shorter point. The biblical theology of the conflict. Let's turn to the book of Galatians chapter four. The biblical theology of the conflict. Brothers and sisters, what are we to learn from this conflict? Let me begin by stating emphatically what we are not to learn from this conflict. We are not to learn from the conflict that we see between Abraham and his house that this is the way we resolve conflict. Are you with me? Did you get that? Let's try that again. We are not to learn from the conflict that has happened in Abraham's house that this is the way that we resolve conflict. This is not presented for us as a model that we are meant to follow when conflict arises in our houses. Amen. Uh, when conflict arises in our houses, the resolution is not Send those who have conflicting, uh, who have opposed you, send them away with food and water. This is not to say, husbands, when your wife is opposing you on a matter, that you say, you know what? I'll be right back. <laughs> and you go and prepare water and food for her and say, bye. Because this is what Abraham did, and so this is what I'm going to do. Although there may be times that we would love nothing better than to send someone away, those who have offended us, this is not what the Scriptures are teaching us. Is that clear? And let that be a lesson for all of us when we are studying the Scriptures. Every action taken in Scripture is not prescriptive for the reader. Meaning God does not intend for us to observe every action and say, and go and do likewise. Not the case. So then, if this passage is not meant for our emulation, what is the purpose of the passage? Understand, first of all, this is an historical account of the life of the patriarch Abraham. This really happened. And it is meant to display the history of the people of Israel through them. The promised one that would emerge. Uh, so God is, is giving us the history of Israel and also showing us that there is one who will arise from these people, from this history, that will bless the nations and will be the one that will crush the head of the serpent. You got that? So when we're reading Genesis, this is the, the history of the patriarch Abraham. This is the history of the people of Israel. The one through whom the Messiah will come. Yeah? So then we must look at the passage from that vantage point. And the scriptures are intentionally keeping us on track with that point. Isaac is the promised child. What, what promise? 
The promise that is stretching back to Genesis 3.15. He is the one through whom the Messiah will come. Listen, he is the, the promised child, right? But he is not the promised one. There's a twofold aspect to Isaac. Yes, he is the promise by which the nation will be built, but he is not the Messiah. And Abraham believed that both would come through him. Does that make sense? Good. He is the one that God has promised would be given to Abraham from the moment that God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. Isaac is the child of faith. He is the child that has been accomplished, not by the work of Abraham, not by the work of Sarah, but he's been accomplished by the power of God. The birth of Isaac was the work of God. Now, see this contrast. Ishmael was the child of flesh. He was the child accomplished in the flesh. He was the child accomplished in, in disbelief. He was the child accomplished in human effort. Stay with me. Ishmael, not the child of promise. Why? Because he's not of faith. He's of flesh. Right? Brothers and sisters, this difficult experience was being lived out by those in the house of Abraham. It was real. It was heartbreaking. And it would later stand as an example of the foundation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we mean? The Apostle Paul, wrestling with Judaizers, as they were called in Galatia, over how one is justified, declared right before God. And in this wrestling with these false teachers, with these uh, false presenters of false gospels, that the Apostle Paul draws from this story in Genesis chapter 21 and uses it as his proof text of how salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, it's something that happened way here. And Paul, going through conflict with false teachers, grabs this story and says, this is what this meant. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Listen to this. Listen to Paul. Tell me, I'm reading from the, uh, the NASB, if you are following along. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son, you know what? Yeah, let me just read it and we'll get back. to it. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. That is a huge point. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai. That's a greater point in Arabia. And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That's an amazing point. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who, who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But those, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. Now, a lot said, I wanted to actually explain this later, but here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church of Galatia. They're primarily made up of Gentile, that is, non-Jewish believers. This church was being infiltrated and then persecuted by a sect of so-called believers that were mixing Judaism with Christianity. They believed, they said, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they also believed that in order to be completely saved, one must convert to Judaism, along with all of its regulations. Therefore, they denied Christ because they taught that true salvation was accomplished, hear that, by obedience to Judaism and the regulations of Judaism. 
That is, they believe that a return to the obedience of the Mosaic law, observing every moon, every festival, every Old Testament Sabbath, obeying the moral law, the civil law, and ceremonial requirements of the law, would cause you to be justified, innocent before God. They were mixing faith and works, but emphasizing the works. The Apostle Paul was shocked, shocked at Galatia. Why? Because he preached the gospel to, the, to, Galatia, to Galatia. He preached the gospel of grace to them. And he says to them in the opening, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. He's saying, I, I, I'm amazed that you've deserted grace. The grace that I've taught you in Christ, he says, for a different gospel, which really is not another or in other versions, he says, which is no gospel at all. Only there are some who are disturbing you or persecuting you that want to distort the gospel. He's using this same kind of persecution, same kind of language, and he will later uh, pay it back or pay it off by saying that's what Ishmael did to Isaac. The apostle goes to great lengths in the book of Galatians, uh, and we don't have the time to go through it. To show that if you go back to the regulations of the law, you're going to slavery, not to freedom. Freedom is found in Christ, in the grace that is offered in Christ. It is a free gift. No one can pay it. No one can earn it. This is why the gospel is good news, right? And in order to display this slavery that the believers were being called back to and also the believers were giving into... He shows them that they were not being loved by the Judaizers with their flowery speeches. They were not being loved by them. They were actually being persecuted by them. And he goes back to chapter 21 of the book of Genesis to make his point. He makes this contrast between two different groups, Isaac and Ishmael. And their mothers are also two different groups. On the one hand, you have the one group, the son of the slave, born according to the flesh. That is Ishmael. Ishmael was born of the flesh, of the work of man. He represents, listen closely, this is important. He represents the law. And what was done to the one who was born of the work of man? You hear that? What happened to the son of the flesh? Did he stay in the community of believers? That's a bad word. But did he stay in that? Did he stay with Abraham? He was cast out. Right? He was cast out. He did not partake in the inheritance of God. And then in a shocking move, the apostle Paul connects Ishmael and his mother to Mount Sinai. What's important with Mount Sinai? What happened at Mount Sinai? What was given at Mount Sinai? The law. Paul says... Those who follow the law are of the flesh. Those who follow the law are cast out. Now, those Jewish people would say, Mount Sinai, this is, are you crazy? This is the, the, the most holy thing that has happened. You cannot connect us who follow the law to the flesh. That is rejected by God. Listen to what he also goes on to say. They are Mount Sinai. And they are also the present state of Jerusalem. Now. Do the Jews want to be connected with Ishmael in any kind of way? They want to reject Ishmael because they say, who is their father? Abraham. What do they constantly say? Abraham's our father. We'll talk about that in a moment. Abraham's our father. And Paul's saying, no, Ishmael's your father. You're from Mount Sinai. Well, isn't that, isn't that a, a great place to be? No, it's not. Why? Because Christ has come. Because Christ has come. If you are connecting yourself with the work of the flesh, you are opposing Christ. The Jews believed that they were the people of God via their connection to Abraham. They believed that they were sons of Abraham. And they constantly said to Jesus, we're sons of Abraham. The Apostle Paul actually says, no, you're slaves. You are children of the bondwoman. They who trust in their own works to achieve a right standing before God, you are slaves. You are not sons of God. 
The Lord Jesus Christ said the same thing in John 8, 31. Uh, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered him this. Here's what they said. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say we will become free? We are free. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to every one of you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The Lord will go on to say that because they began, they continued to argue with him. He said, matter of fact, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of the devil. They were actually children of the flesh, enslaved to sin. And they sought to honor their father, the devil, because they persecuted Christ. Do you see how Ishmael is now connected to this? The apostle goes on to say that if you follow, return to the law of Moses, that is the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law, then you are returning to a covenant of flesh. Those who seek to be justified by the flesh, by the law, you are cut off, Paul will later say. You're cut off from Christ. You are a child of the devil. Seeking to be justified by the law does not draw you closer to Christ. It drives a wedge between you and Christ. When Jewish holidays come around, if you think that it is your obligation to observe that Jewish holiday, or even if we think it is cute in some kind of way to observe Rosh Hashanah and whatever else, whatever other kind of Jewish holiday, you are not, you are not drawing closer to Christ. You are not being more spiritual. You are dividing a wall, drawing a wall between you and Christ. You don't need to wear prayer shawls. You don't need to observe new moon festivals the way they do. Don't follow the Jewish holiday calendar. Follow Christ. Because none of those observations will do anything for you. Don't post a menorah on your Facebook during Christmas time. Christ has come and accomplished all of those things. He has brought down every dividing wall in being the fulfillment of each and every one of those festivals, each and every one of those new moons, and the Old Testament Sabbaths. He is the fulfillment of the law. Paul goes on to say in the rest of that verse, uh, verses 28 to 31, there's another side of the group. Those who are connected to Isaac and Sarah. They are sons of the free woman. They are not of the flesh. They are of the promise. They are connected not to, to the Jerusalem here on earth, but to the Jerusalem above. Which is free, he says. They are connected to faith. They are those who recognize they are as good as dead. That there is nothing that they can contribute to their salvation. There is nothing that they can add to the perfect work of Christ. Just like Abraham considered his body as good as dead. But did not waver in faith when the Lord came to him and said, A year from now you shall have a promised child. This was the work of God, not of Abraham. And Abraham believed and there was no boasting in the flesh of Abraham. All Abraham could do when the child was born was say, to God be the glory. And now all of these years later, the Lord has providentially used that heartbreaking incident to clarify a foundational truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is this, that brothers and sisters, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Abraham would have never known the purposes of God in this difficult situation. That God would use this difficulty for the church to stand on the doctrine of sola fide. Faith alone. Brothers and sisters, that is what we take away from this heartbreaking incident in the life of Abraham. None of the actors in this difficult incident could have ever known that they would be used to clarify the gospel. The conflict in Abraham's house it causes us to ask this simple question. Are you a child of the flesh? Are you seeking to be good enough so that one day you might be accepted by God? Are you looking at yourself and saying, I think I have been good enough. I haven't done anything terribly wrong. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen. Uh, I haven't robbed the bank. I haven't stolen anyone's wife. Friend, if you think that it is because of those things that you will stand right before God, then you are a child of the flesh. You are a son of the bondwoman, a son of the slave, Ishmael and Hagar. Or are you a child of the promise? 
one who trusts not in yourself, but who trusts in the finished work and the perfect work of Isaac's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking at all of the deeds that you have done and say, I am deserving of no good thing for not even in not not only in my my actions, but in my thoughts, I have violated God's perfect and righteous law. Therefore, I am deserving of judgment. And I cast myself at the foot of the cross, knowing that there is no way that I can be saved except for faith. And the one who has done for me what I could never do for myself. Which are you? If you seek to be justified by the law, you are condemned. But if you place your faith in the son, then you will truly be set free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Which are you? I pray that you are the latter this morning. That you are those who have placed your faith in Christ. That although you fail, that although you sin, you know that there is not one thing that will be held against you. And this is not a brother, uh, sister, this is not a license to say I can therefore go and do whatever I would like to do. No, we, we obey God's righteous law. We obey his commands because this is what God has called us to do. We have now a desire, a longing for obedience to God. But we know that we are not yet made perfect. And that we are being made perfect through obedience and through trial. But if you place your faith in the Son, you are free. You are of the Jerusalem above that is free. I pray that that be so for all of you this morning. And if you have not, I call you to repent and place your faith in Christ. Trust in Him alone, for there is salvation in no one else but Christ. Let's pray.